Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Unity Colorado, a Colorado political podcast. Brought to you by Colin Wilhelm for Colorado. I am Colin Wilhelm, and with me as always is wonderful human being, Keely. Good morning. Happy to be here. Great to have you here. Well, um, one thing John says we talk about too much on this show, so we'll talk about it again. John, our producer, is uh, the weather. Um, I wanted to uh, highlight the fact that this is the latest Colorado. Denver and Glenwood and Grand Junction have gone in the year without a significant snow. Yeah, we normally have snow by October 31st. But, uh, no, I'm not one for snow. I don't really like the snow, but I realize how important it is for Colorado that we get snow. Yep. Um, So So everybody out there listening in Colorado, please go to the car wash. Yeah, wash your cars. Always works. Always works. Every (laughs) single damn time. So, John, that one is for you. Um. Yeah, so we got a lot to talk about today. Um, as always, though, before we get started, you can listen to Unity Colorado on the Anchor app, on Spotify, on Stitcher, basically wherever you find your podcasts, and also at our website, wilhelmforcolorado.com, where you can um, listen, you can learn more about me and where we stand on ideas. You can go to the events page. We have events all throughout Colorado, from Delta to Pueblo to Montrose to Trinidad, planned for December. Lots of events coming up, so please come out and join us. Yep, And then also you can volunteer, sign up for a newsletter, or donate to the campaign to make Lauren Boebert and her racist statements a thing of the past. So that's Wilhelm for Colorado again. So with that, uh, let's enjoy episode number 10, Milestone for us. Sounds great. Um, so today, um, you know, in, in recent news, there's been a lot of a lot of conversation about um, Islamophobia. Yes. Yeah. Um, it was important to me to bring it up um, because a lot of people have been focusing on Lauren Boebert's statements, which we'll get to in um, in the later today. Um, but it's um, important to me. As somebody who grew up in Metro Detroit, which has the sixth largest Muslim population in the United States, mm-hmm. um, mostly I was I was a kid, mostly pre nine eleven, um, when Islamophobia was not de jour or all the rage. Right. Um, and then I was a senior in high school on nine eleven when uh, that happened, and I saw how the perception changed almost overnight. Um, for my friends, for members of my community, for people that lived in my neighborhood, people that went to my school, and um, unfairly so. And so I just wanted to address some things about that in the news today. Um, Islamophobia is is real. It's a fear that is founded in um, differences in culture, religion, and or political interests. Um, And it's, uh, it's very real in the United States to the point where um, globally many Muslims have reported that in the West, particularly in the United States, um, uh, people of Muslim religion um, don't feel that the West is welcoming. Right. Um, 52% of Americans and 48% of Canadians say the West does not respect Muslim societies. So that's more than 50% of our population. Wow, that's sad. Um, and I think that a large portion of this um, t- 
tends to be attributed to misinformation from from the experts. Okay. Right. Uh, there's a big, huge misinformation network about how every person who practices Islam doesn't like Western culture or is out to attack Western culture. And that's not true. Right. That's like saying that every person who practices Christianity hates capitalism or hates Denmark. Right. Not picking on Denmark, just picked a random country. Sure. <laughs> um, and so um, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's the, propping up of a small group of extremists, fundamental extremists based upon their religion in some of the attacks that have happened on the West. And, um, and it's just not fair to the majority of the billion people who practice Islam in the world. Yeah, and I always like to point out again that the United States is a melting pot of different mm -hmm. cultures and religions. And unless you are a Native American that is native to this area, you too have like, immigrated here through your ancestors. Like you are. Yes. Yes. And um, yeah, only half, you know, on one half. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, no one has more of a right to be here than no. anyone else. No. And um, there's, a, and people will say, no matter what kind of minority group you are in the United States, that you've probably experienced some form of hatred based upon that minority. Right. Um, and this is not to say to, to diminish it, but Muslims are more likely than any other religion in the United States to be attacked for their religion. Right. Um, and that goes just to individual profiling at an airport right. um, to what they wear. And it's just, it's, uh, and it's ironic that we have sitting Republican Congress people attacking people of a certain religion and calling them terrorists when um, two out of five terrorist attacks from Islamic extremists in the United States since 9-11, two out of every five have been stopped with the direct help of people of Middle Eastern descent, right. according to the FBI. Wow. Um, that's more than any other subgroup have helped stop any other attack. I didn't know that. So there's a lot of um, good that's being done to, to behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the the Fear Inc. is a group um, out of the um, Center for American Progress. And Fear Group did a study of Muslims in the United States and asked what steps could be taken mm -hmm. to allow uh, Muslims to feel better about um, respect in Muslim societies in the West. Right. And the, the five things that they came up with were um, pretty simple, just basic things. Uh, abstaining from desecrating the Quran or other Muslim religious symbols, which I think is perfectly fine. Yeah. I mean, the same people that just desecrate Muslim symbols are probably the ones who are out there saying you can't desecrate the Bible. Right. Or the Torah. So right. it's kind of like what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Right. Um, this one's pretty simple. Treat Muslims fairly in the policies that affect them. Protect the rights of Muslims in societies. And it's not give them more rights. It's just protect the rights that they have equal to everybody else's. Right, absolutely. Um, accurately portray Muslims in the Western media. This goes back to what I was talking about, about the fear and the misinformation. Right. Um, I think that's super important. I would say that's the number one thing that we as a society can do, just on a daily basis. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody you know, watches the news and reads, yeah. reads the news and to start treating people fairly up there is, yeah. you know, has that trickle down effect. Even drama shows like FBI and NCIS and right. stuff um, stop making the majority of the bad guys Muslim descent. Right. Um, and then uh, work with Muslim societies to, as equal partners on these issues, which I think is just something that we should be doing in general. Everybody should be an equal partner at the table. And when I'm in Congress, they will be. I love that. So uh, I just wanted to highlight those things and um, talk about how important it is to me to stamp out Islamophobia whenever I see it. Yes. And as we um, will get into in the final section of our podcast today, um, there's just no excuse for for it all. No excuse for what Lauren Bubbert said. No. Or continues to say. You can find this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to listen, subscribe, and if you like it, leave a five-star review. Okay, so uh, with that, what do you have for us today, Keely? Okay, so today is kind of a big topic that um, obviously we could talk about for hours. Um, But we're going to try to simplify it and bring out some of the you know, more, you know, shocking <laughs> um, statistics and things um, about the housing crisis and specifically here in Colorado and Colorado's third district. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the housing crisis, there are um, many factors that go into it. And to begin here, I'm going to talk about, you know, the, the quote unquote American dream of owning a home. Okay. Um, so, you know, some of the factors might be the fact that we have stagnant wages that have not gone up. Um, we have more and more highly wealthy people moving mm-hmm. here that drives up the prices of homes to buy. Um, availability of building supplies, um, as well as constrictions on new builds. Like there's a lot of places, especially you know, in town, for instance, that say you, you have to have a two-car garage. Your driveway has to be a certain length. You can only decorate with certain types of landscape. Mm-hmm. So it puts a lot of different constrictions. Um, and then you know, this is kind of just one that I threw in there, but um, a lot of people that do own homes have turned those homes into short-term rentals, um, such as Airbnb, Airbnb, uh, VRBO, those sort of companies. Um, And it creates a lot less long-term rentals and obviously drives the prices up for um, rentals. And then those homes are not available for purchase. Um, I saw this stat today, um, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, Prices for a home are 807.2% higher in 2021 than in 1967. So a house that you could buy in 1967 for $100,000 is now about a million dollars. Okay. For that same Same basic three-bedroom home. Yep. Wages wages have not, as we've talked about in other podcasts, have not gone up 800%. Since 1967. No, and that's just, I mean, that is a huge amount. Yes. Huge. Um, you know, it brings me to the fact that like purchasing a home is now so competitive here that most people put in an offer on a home before even seeing it, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. You know, obviously it diminishes the idea of having that dream home that you search for forever because you don't have time yeah. to search for it, that dream home um, if one pops up. You have to try to buy it. <laughs> but also, if that home has issues in the foundation or anything, you kind of have to take it as is. Yeah. 
um, and deal with those later because yeah. And it's not just here in CD3, it's all across the country. Uh, I was listening to something, Blacksburg, West Blacksburg, Virginia, where Virginia Tech University is. Yeah. Small college town, the average um, date, uh, the average time on the listing is one day. Wow. So. I believe it. I mean, I bought a home this year, luckily, um, and I, w I was searching for about four months before I found my house. Um, mm -hmm. unfortunately due to the increase of pricing, I live about an hour away from where I work. Yep. Um, so it's certainly happening and it unfortunately is cause, causing a lot of people to move out of the areas that they grew up in mm -hmm. and love. And we use the euphemism seller's market, right? which basically means you're paying three times the house with what a price is worth. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, in, in Colorado, there's just over a three week supply of single family homes and 1.1 month supply of condos and townhomes, and that's the lowest on record. So at the end of 2020, there were fewer than 9,000 homes and condos available for Colorado buyers. To the whole state? In a state of over 5.8 million people. Wow. Those numbers don't. No. <laughs> they don't work out. Um, and, and growing, too. Yeah. 5.8 million people and growing. Yes. And, um, you know, a huge factor of us growing is, is the pandemic. We'll get into that in just mm -hmm. a minute. Um, but, you know, I wanted to bring out the point that across Western Colorado, especially um, the housing, uh, housing shortage is especially notable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with Western Colorado growing even faster um, than that of you know, Eastern Colorado, which is just blown up too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there's just little to no increase in the housing stock. Um, the average sale price of townhomes and condos have increased 63.3% from July of 2019 to July of 2020. So even, you know, if you can't afford that single family home, mm -hmm. it's almost impossible to afford those small condos that you yeah. have no yard. You have so, none of that freedom. In one year during the pandemic, mm -hmm. a condo, a $250,000 condo is now worth, is now selling for 375000 Yes. Or 400000 Yes, yeah, so it's it's growing at a just incredible rate, um, and not great for the people that, no. <laughs> that live here. Uh, so with the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, obviously we have seen that a lot of people have chosen to move out of cities yeah. and um, more to rural areas like Western Colorado, which um, we have abundant of rural areas. Yes, yes, absolutely. So um, with with the migration to these like you know small towns, gateway communities. Um, you know, obviously you have the attractions of the ski resorts yep. and uh, being a tourist destination. But the people that live here that make these towns work, you know, maybe have been out of a job because of the pandemic mm -hmm. or just can no longer afford to live here because they can't even afford a you know one bedroom apartment um, or a single family home here. So, you know, it's great that everybody wants to live here. Yep. But if nobody that, you know, is that, the foundation of our communities can afford to live here. It's going to be a lot less attractive real soon. Yeah. And it's, we see it right here in the, in the Roaring Fork Valley. We've seen it for decades here, mm -hmm. right. but it's just catching up. And one thing that a lot of people who aren't familiar with CD3, a Western Colorado and Southern mm -hmm. Colorado is the, the, the small towns that we have that we talked about are, are not desolate small towns. They're, they're cute and charming. And so they attract people that want to come and live here. Right. Uh, retirement or live off 
uh, and work from home, that type of thing, and raise their families here because of the members of society and, and, and the charmingness of the town. And and, um, and there's almost that Hallmark movie feel to some of them. Right. Um, and that brings people in. But yeah, now the prices are going up so much that the people that live here right. are having trouble. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I did a little bit of, I feel like we often talk about like Glenwood Springs surrounding mm-hmm. area. Obviously, that's where we are located. Um, but I did a little bit of digging into Southwest Colorado because they are part of CD3 as well. Um, so all the way down in like La Plata County, um, Durango, um, you know, it says the lack of housing has reached a crisis point in parts of Southwest Colorado where a shortage of places to buy and rent affordable, affordably is keeping critical businesses and organizations from hiring and retaining workers. So that, you know, obviously brings back to the residents that have lived there. Mm -hmm. So we have people that are living in their cars or in campgrounds and resorting to, you know, it's, you know, quite frankly, cheaper to buy an RV Yes. and try to, you know, park it on the friend's property or something. Um, And I just think that that's, you know, it's sad and it's kind of unacceptable. Yeah. And um, some of the stuff that I found in, in trying to research this idea, because I've been everywhere I go throughout C83, Mm -hmm. uh, when I talk to people, and ask them what's the most important thing or when I'm doing these listening or meet and greet right. events. Housing is the number one right. concern across the, the district. And I've noticed that it's not the same reasons. Each mm-hmm. each district has, each city has their own different reasons. And, right. Um, some areas it's, um, it's the short-term rental. Some areas it's lack of Ability. But one thing that I've been noticing is it comes down to some certain causes. It's ones that you've touched on already. Lack of new homes. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there has been some supply chain disruptions, which is causing that, and labor shortages right. which are causing that, which hopefully we can fill up. Fill up. But um, the lack of short-term rentals, like you said. Right. Um, but there's also been something that's been interesting is there's been less foreclosures because mm-hmm. of the pandemic. And foreclosures make up a significant portion of the affordable housing right. entry level. Um, and so that's being the problem because banks aren't able to foreclose during this moratorium mm-hmm. um, on mortgages, which is a good thing. We don't want right. people out of their houses during a pandemic, right. but it's causing a housing shortage. It's ineffective. It's affecting that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also one thing that I found is that the second homeowners People that are coming to to live out here that are buying a second home, right. many of them are not selling their homes where they lived at because they've already paid them off. Right. So they're keeping the second home. And now they're either living in one or the other for the majority of the year, but it's not re-entering into the, into the housing cycle. Right. Um, and baby boomers are healthier for longer, right. living longer mm-hmm. in their homes too, right. whether it's their first home or not. And so they're... They're not entering that cycle of as you get older, you go into a nursing home or you go live with your families, your kids and that sort of thing. Generations before us did. Right. And so that's causing this um, that what's what's going on with the the lack of some of one of the reasons of the lack of uh, housing. But the biggest issue in CD3 that I've noticed is that we are having problems building new units. Right. Um, For uh, just either for rentals or for housing. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any, did you find any numbers on, on new units that are being built? 
Um, I know that it is down quite a bit. Um, let me see here. I only have national numbers, so. Okay, I don't have anything on what's being billed, just on like increasing of rent payments. And well, it's okay if you don't, because it, what's going on in the national numbers is the exact same as what's going on across the country right. or, or in CD three, mm-hmm. um, except for one key issue. Um, nationally, pre the housing crisis of two thousand and eight, twelve years ago, new houses were being built at a rate across the country of one about two million a year. Right. After that, it dropped down to 500,000 a year. Wow. So that's just over the cumulative effect of the last 12 years, we have less new homes being built per year across the country. Wow. So that, that causes people to try to have to buy places that are already built, sight right. and see. Um, you know, I did have something uh, about a shor- the shortage of rentals in Colorado, um, especially those you know that are considered quote-unquote, extremely low income. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a family of four-person, a four-person household um, that makes about $28,000 a year, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know anybody that can live on that with four people in, in Colorado. But um, there are negative 113,000 available homes for these extremely low-income renters. Negative. Negative 113,000. Yeah, well... That means that even if we made 113,000 units in, right. in Western Colorado, we wouldn't begin to ease that pain. Yeah, not even close. Um, One thing that's preventing that, that's unique to Colorado, is um, the the ability to build. Where right. can you build? Um, and we think of Western Colorado as this open rural area. And a lot right. of times they're, they, they are open. Mm-hmm. Most, all that land is either owned by uh, private people right. or the federal government or the state governments and prevented upon building that. Right. Which, I, I mean, I, I do support that. We mm-hmm. need to protect our lands and make sure that Colorado stays this beautiful place that everybody loves. Yep. But there's just too many people moving here and not enough houses. <laughs> yeah. But then there's an interesting factor of when that land comes up for development. Let's mm-hmm. say it's a private unit that could be developed into a multi- family home unit or an apartment building or something. Right. The individual homeowners in that area have for the last decade decided that they don't want new units in their, in their area because their housing prices will go down. Oh. And so these baby boomers who are now in charge of running small towns have put into effect blockers and barriers right. like the two car garage, like the 1.5 parking spaces in your driveway. Right. Like all of those things that mm-hmm. prevent and cause homeowner cause developers to not be able to build affordable housing. Right. Well, and the whole idea of affordable housing, I mean, as we know here in Glenwood, there's been lots of condos that have gone up. Yep. But um, I personally would call those anything but affordable. Yes. You know, one bedroom puts you at about mm-hmm. $2,800 a month. Yep. We, but you also need 1.5 parking spaces. Right. <laughs> And so there's all these little things like that that are put into place by the by the people who run the town who are also homeowners in the town. Right. And it's not like necessarily conscious of they're trying to prevent new new development or new building mm-hmm. necessarily. It's just it's part of the idea of we don't want much change to our community. Right. So we're going to try to restrict change, but that also restricts growth. Right. And um, we're in a bit of a conundrum. We are. Um, you know some. 
I saw some kind of eye-opening figures um, included in the Colorado Sun. They did a whole report on the housing crisis. Um, across Archuleta, Dolores, La Plata, Montezuma, and San Juan counties. So um, the southwest of Colorado. Yep. Median rent increased 31% between 2010 and 2019. So that's even before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, while renters' income, median income, only went up 19%. Uh -huh. So there's still that gap. Um, in those counties, more than 11,000 residents were spending more than 30% of their income on housing in 2019. And a large, about 5,000 were paying more than 50% of their income towards their rent. Which, which we have, we believe in that like 30, 30, 30, 30, 30. Yeah. So we're yeah way out of whack on that. Um, in La Plata County, residential property values have gone up about 30% um, since the end of June, 2020. Uh -huh. So homes that used to sell for $450,000 are now going for like $600,000 or more. Yep. So what we're seeing is the amount of available homes that are, you know, say $250,000 or less, there's hardly they're not existent. not existent. And then the amount of homes that are, say, $650,000 and up, mm -hmm. there's lots of those which bring in all the wealthy people. And, you know, I personally, I'm 27 years old. Oh. I could not afford a $650,000 home. No. And um, not many people that I know can, especially because nowadays you have to have pretty much cash to get that home because of the little amount of time on the market like we talked about. Right. Yeah, so overall in the third um, congressional district, so the median income per household um, is about $46,000. Can you guess what the 2021 average sales price was? Across CD3? Yep. $575,000. $676,000. Okay, so that's $100,000 low. Yeah, so that puts you at spending more than... Yep. You know, 50% of your income on your mortgage. Most people that I know, and I know a number of people in the banking industry and in, mm -hmm. and in loans and mortgages, and I don't think they would give you a mortgage on that right now. Right. Um, they, yeah. You could have pre-housing crisis, pre-2008. Right. But banks have changed because of all of that. Right. And I mean, that's just for a single family home. If we're yeah. looking at townhouses and condos, the average for CD3 is $857,000. For a condo. $857,000 for a condo? For a condo as of October of 2021. Are we talking like that's, center of Aspen or Telluride? Or? That's average throughout the 3rd Congressional District. So we could be talking about right down in Pagosa Springs. Yep. Cute little town. Yeah. Not $800,000 for a condo town. I don't necessarily think so. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's just getting out of hand. And what we're going to see is... Like, like I mentioned before, mm -hmm. people that make these towns run and are the backbone of these communities can no longer afford to live here. And the people that are moving here and rely on these people to, you know, do everything for them, per se, yep. um, <laughs> there's not going to be anybody here to do that. And I can't imagine somebody that, um, you know, say, for instance, lives up in Aspen, depends on these services and things to get out there and, I don't know, yeah. work at the laundromat. Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in, in the people that are moving in and buying these $850,000 condos need places to go eat mm -hmm. and need places to, to do their laundry at or have their laundry done for them. Right. 
And um, if we can't afford to have waiters and, and wait staff and lawyers and, and um, everywhere in between live here, because I can tell you as a lawyer, those aren't affordable for us either. Right. Um, those are CEO prices. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, for just about everybody, it's just getting, it's a, it is a crisis. Yep. It but is right to be called that. I have some good news. What? But before I get to that, I want to remind everybody that you're listening to Unity Colorado, a Colin Wilhelm for Colorado podcast. You can listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, um, Anchor app, wherever you listen to podcasts, or on our website, wilhelmforcolorado.com. Go there, donate, check out the events page, volunteer, sign up for our email list, donate. Donate. Um, all of those good things. <laughs> so, yeah. So there's Congress is trying to do something. Okay. Mostly the Democrats in Congress and the Love Build that. Back Better plan. Okay. Which is currently on the table. Uh-huh. And they're attempting to address this okay. within that program. Um, to me, they're trying to fix the symptoms and not necessarily the solutions. Okay. But um, that's not necessarily a bad thing right. because... As I mentioned, every town has small little micro issues of what the problem is. Right. There's not one single fix for Western Colorado, but there's also not one single fix. That's why this is happening in New York City, Austin, Texas, Western Colorado, upstate New York, right. Virginia. Everything's different, right? Right. So they're putting a lot of money into the housing trust fund, the capital magnet fund, um, and the low income tax credit and the neighboring home investment act. Okay. Now, the first two, the Housing Trust Fund and the Capital Magnet Fund, they provide grants to nonprofits to invest in affordable housing throughout the country. Okay. So that can allow the nonprofits at the local level to figure out what can be done right now. That's awesome. And address those, those emergency issues. Right. That some people call the symptoms, I call the emergency problem. Right. Um, and also then investing in the Low Income Tax Credit and the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act uses direct tax incentives to builders and to people to allow them to buy homes or develop homes. Okay. Um, maybe in a way that they wouldn't necessarily be able to afford right now without that tax credit. Right. But hopefully if we can get them into a home, then, you know, that starts the ball rolling. Right. Absolutely. Um, so I want to, when I get into Congress, I want to take this build back better legislation, but I want to put it on steroids right. for this issue. Um, I want to invest heavily into figuring out how we solve these emergency issues right now. Most definitely. Invest into those areas. And I'm talking like almost military spending type okay. spending, like not probably not like the, that amount, but sure. you know, the cost of one aircraft carrier could do a whole hell of a lot of good for this. Right. Um, and we have 12 aircraft carriers. We don't necessarily need another one right now. The, Chinese have the most second most aircraft carriers, and they have two, I believe. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, we could definitely reallocate some of those funds to mm -hmm. actually helping more people. In, 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 you're going to say, but what about the troops? Well, I have a lot of friends that are in the military. Right. And this affects their families more than it does. Most right. families don't live on base. Right. Most young military people mm -hmm. live on base. Sure. But once you have a family, you don't you move off right. a lot of times. Right. Um, and so you're overseas, you're deployed, you're somewhere, and your military family is living in these homes too. 
right. and they're just living in the general area and right. their housing prices are even more astronomical near a base because it's a good area quote unquote right well luckily uh, you know a lot of people in the military do qualify for that like it's zero dollars mm -hmm. down yeah. uh, making it a little bit more, more affordable for them at the onset right but there's not much that goes into it throughout right and so so yeah so you know it's affordable to, you don't have to pay that per the PMI, the purchase, purchase mortgage interest mm -hmm. insurance, or you don't have to pay the 30% uh, down payment. Right. But you still have to find that monthly nut. Right. And um, and so, so yeah, so there's that issue. So this would affect and help military people dramatically. Right. Um, and so that's what I want to do. But also at the same time, I want to have Congress fund studies through these grants with nonprofits in in the local areas mm -hmm. so as the nonprofits are giving out these funds to help build affordable housing or sure. whatever they're however they're going to do it right i want them to also study what their root cause was going back as many decades as, as it's necessary yeah i think that's a great idea i mean i know that we can all recognize this crisis you know this crisis that's happening with the housing but like you said i don't think there's a whole lot of research and study that has gone no. Into the why. No, and this brings back to an overall goal of what I want to do when I'm in Congress. And it's a slow shift, but our government in my entire lifetime has been reactive. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way that with the amount of people that are coming up with, with ideas and solutions out there, we can become more of a proactive right. government on some issues. Some things we can't. We, we have to react to. But we can become more proactive in, in areas. And so that's something that I, I really believe in for the future of this country. And so funding this study at this at these local levels, bringing that back to Congress mm -hmm. can allow Congress to create um, to get it to experts to create some sort of plan at a national level that we can or maybe it's a regional level, whatever the experts right. say, and, and figure out a way to prevent this from happening in two decades. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, on that note, Colin, uh, you know, Colin will help Colorado, proactive, not reactive. Nope. <laughs> um, you know, that kind of wraps, wraps up the housing crisis um, for us today. Obviously, we, we all know that there's huge issues and they need to be looked at. And I'm really hoping that this Build Back Better program um, does have some effect and can help the people of our communities. The biggest thing that I would say about it is it's either we do the Build Back Better program and start something or we just say, throw up our hands like we do with so many issues right. as a country and kick it down the road and it just gets significantly worse. Right. Absolutely. So yeah, it's definitely time that we start working together. Um, and I, I heard this the other day and I thought it was great. You can't have <laughs> community without unity. Yes. And that's uh, kind of wraps up our, our unity for Colorado podcast without what we haven't done the BBB, which nope. is not my most favorite because of Lauren Bubber. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just a reminder, go on to our website, wilhelmforcolorado.com. Check out our events. We've got lots. I'm sending Colin on lots of adventures. Yes. Over the next couple of months. Um, so if you are in CD3, um, take a look at when we're going to be in your area because we will be just about everywhere. Um, and please join us for some of our upcoming events. You can find this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to listen, subscribe, and if you like it, leave a five-star review. Now, the BBB this time is not going to be a traditional BBB. Um, 
So we're focusing back on Lauren Boebert, and you said it before, working together. Yes. Um, Lauren Boebert, uh, we talked about this in the last episode, about her her actions for to Elon Omar on the House floor. Right. Um, she doubled down over Thanksgiving weekend on that. Yes. Um, probably everybody who listens to this has seen the video. Yeah. Um, where she talked about a book bag and, and essentially called um, Elon Omar a terrorist. Yes. Um, and so we talked about Islamophobia at the beginning of the show um, and where it had, how it affects me personally, um, emotionally. So I wrote an open letter to Elon Omar, Representative Elon Omar. And to conclude this episode, I'm going to read that. And that's where we're going to end it today. I love that. Let's hear it. Um, so it starts with, uh, Dear Representative Omar, I apologize for the words and actions of my representative, Lauren Boebert. Ms. Boebert does not reflect the views or beliefs of the vast majority of Western and Southern Colorado. Throughout her adult life, Rep. Boebert has displayed that only her priority, that her only priority is her own notoriety and fame. These examples are far too numerous and egregious and seem to only multiply without consequences. I cannot stand by and allow Ms. Boebert to continue to use tragedies, false narratives, racism, and bigotry for her own personal gain at the expense of Western and Southern Colorado. Her attacks on you are in line with her history of anti-Muslim bigotry and her deeply ingrained xenophobia. The vast majority of the good people of Colorado do not share her misguided beliefs. I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, and Michigan is home to the sixth highest proportion of Muslims Americans in the nation. Growing up in a largely Muslim community, I've seen firsthand how anti-Muslim rhetoric harms families and encourages dangerous acts of violence. It horrifies me to see Lauren Boebert deploy this hatred in her disgusting attempt to get political notice and advance her own career. Her continued attacks, doubling down on her message, and refusal to genuinely apologize are just as immature and disrespectful as her initial statements. These behaviors would and should be immediate fireable offenses in any other job. She believes, as her entire adult life, that she will suffer no consequences for her words or actions. We must prove this belief unequivocally false. I believe the constituents of CD3 will provide will prove this on Election Day in 2022. And in the meantime, I am proud to stand with you and others in Congress holding her to account. Yours very truly, Colin Wilhelm. Thank you for, for that, Colin. I think it's uh, it's very important that we have a representative that um, you know has that zero tolerance policy. Yep. So with that. Everybody have a good week.